Welcome to Threadbare. I am your host, Suresh P. Thomas. Lofty ideals are an easy alibi for ideological peddling, especially for the state. Case in point, the curriculum rationalization process undertaken by the NCERT as part of the National Education Policy 2020. NEP 2020 aims at making India a global knowledge superpower. It proposes a comprehensive revision and revamping of all aspects of the Indian education structure, including its regulation and governance. Curriculum rationalization involves removing unnecessary and outdated content from textbooks to reduce the workload for students in view of their mental health post-pandemic. Surely a commendable and, as the name suggests, a rational objective. Now take a look at some of the portions that have been deleted as part of this exercise. Chapters on the history of Mughal Empire. Chapters on the history of other Islamic rulers like the Mamluks and the Khaljis. Chapters on the rise of popular movements and the era of one-party dominance after independence. Chapters on American hegemony in world politics and the Cold War era. Chapters on democracy and diversity, popular struggles and movements and challenges to democracy. Chapters on central Islamic lands, clash of cultures and industrial revolution. References to the government's ban on the Rashtriya Swayamsevak Sangh following Gandhi's assassination. References to Nataram Godse's background and his connection with extremist Hindu newspapers. A chapter on violent caste conflicts. Discussion on the history of caste oppression, justifications of caste in Vedas and the dangers of communal politics. Chronology of the Godhra violence. Atal Bihari Vajpayee statements against the Godhra violence. The history of Naxalite movements. Various quotes by Nehru and Ambedkar. A chapter titled Peasants and Farmers. A discussion box on farm laws. And many more. A total of 1,334 changes were made in 182 textbooks, most of them in history and social science books. Despite the government's claim that the rationalization process is meant to reduce the workload of students, these deletions are clearly political in nature and meant to serve the ideological inclinations of the present ruling dispensation. In a two-part series titled Schools and Textbooks, Threadbare examines the history of curriculum revisions in India and the dangers of using textbooks to undermine the nation's secular and democratic edifice. In part one, we speak to Dr. Manish Jain, Associate Professor with the School of Education Studies at Dr. B.R. Ambedkar University, Delhi. Dr. Manish Jain has previously been part of several textbook development teams and curriculum revision committees. Welcome to the show, Dr. Manish Jain. Uh, thank you very much. Let's start with the history of curriculum revision in India. Can you take us back to the late 50s and early 60s when India was developing an educational policy post-independence and the first of these major revisions were made? What were the key points of departure from the colonial education policy? Actually, I would like to take two things rather begin even before uh, 1960s. So I wish to clarify two things. One that there is a difference between two terms, curriculum and slavers. Curriculum is a framework which includes educational aims, 
which has an understanding of the learner, which has a perspective about how children learn. In comparison, syllabus is a list of topics which can be covered. A curriculum approach gives an autonomy to the teacher to deal with that content and it can be addressed in multiple ways through a variety of sources. While this distinction, why this distinction is important, is important to bear in mind. India, because of the colonial experience and even after independence, has continued to be what Dothrins has called a slaver society. During colonial period, the school teacher was converted in an employee of the state who had very limited training and their educational qualifications were also low. At the time of independence, the number of trained teachers was not even one-fifth of the total school teachers. A large number of teachers for primaries could even be class 5 pass. So in such an atmosphere, where teachers in terms of they were also during colonial period asked to teach new kind of subjects. There were new systems of inspections. There were textbooks which were prescribed by the state. And a teacher who was the lower most in the educational bureaucracy meant the teacher both during colonial period and even after independence did not have an autonomy. So when we are talking about curriculum change, Rather, after independence also, we are rather talking about slavery change because India never gave autonomy to teachers. We did not move beyond the textbooks. So that's one thing important. The second thing before we begin talking about 1950s and 60s is also important that even during colonial period, there have been several controversies about textbooks. And though the number of people in terms of percentage in colonial India may not have been uh, very huge, but the educated public was keeping an eye on how their beliefs, what kind of representation, what kind of knowledge was being presented in textbooks. Now let's come back to independent India. So in 1950s, a survey was undertaken which also looked at history textbooks and a variety of these textbooks were found to be communal. It is in that context that the eminent historian Romila Thapar and many other young people were invited to write new kind of history textbooks which would not be communal in their approach which would be secular in the wake of partition, which would use the idea of historical evidence and present a scientific understanding before the students. It's an important point to note. And then in 1960s, our first educational policy 
comes in 1968, which was revised later on in 1986. By mid-1960s, NCRT had already been formed. But what is important to note is that even though we became independent, in terms of conceptualization of curriculum or syllabus, or in terms of pedagogy, how is it to be taught, we were deriving our idea from Bloom's taxonomy, which was becoming dominant in US. Several professors from the new NCRT went and were trained in US and they came back with the idea that the socio-cultural milieu, the context of the children, context of the knowledge, context of the society is to be made irrelevant, is not to be attended to. And by 1980s, we were trying to have a catch-up with the West syndrome. The whole idea as TV came, as computers came, the fear that we are lagging behind, there is an explosion of knowledge. And we have to catch up with the West became important. This is an important thing to note because even though textbooks changed, but in several other disciplines, for example, especially in civics, the colonial mindset where state could never be wrong. Rather, the problems were only seen with the citizens in terms of if their imperfect personal attributes continued. So, before we go to the story later on from 70s, the three important things for us to note is A, that the colonial legacy in education in terms of absence of teachers' autonomy and textbook dominance continued in independent India, number one. Number two, some initiatives were taken to secularize and make textbooks scientific by prominent authors. While still private textbooks continued, NCRT te textbooks came in prominence from 1960s. The third thing to note is that though NCRT became the preeminent organization, but in terms of its conceptualization, the perspective of behaviorism, of control, of absence of social milieu and context remained dominant. And by 1980s, we were trying to catch up with the West syndrome. So when we look at these early state-driven initiatives to secularize textbooks, was there a deliberate attempt to create historical narratives in order to accomplish that objective? Did they run the risk of omitting certain aspects of pre-independence history that might not have been favorable for a secular project? Or was it an exercise that was carried out in a scientifically objective manner, which looked at history as it is devoid of any prejudices? And in the context of curriculum revision, at what point was the secularization project first challenged? I think two important things are worth noting here. A, that these textbooks, see, even the imagination of India 
both during colonial period in the wake of partitioning since then in our 75 years of independence there has not been one singular vision of india one vision of india has been of a secular socialist democratic republic which aims as at justice liberty and equality another perspective has been which has been of a majoritarian nationalism a militant nationalism where certain religious groups are in preeminence while other religious groups are seen as second rate citizens so when you are thinking about education education is not outside society these contestations which have been going on in the wider society also reflected in relation to what should be our educational goals number 1 number 2 even though and i will be simultaneously talking about both history and civics which i specialize so the new textbooks which were authored by romila thapar and others they were they were uh, not using facts to erase certain narratives they were definitely bringing to attention a uh, certain other dimensions and they were also moving beyond the positivist history where the socio economic dimensions of how society gets formed was being brought to notice it is also important to note that they were critiquing the colonial division of india based on religion in uh, james mills important narrative several volumes of history of india india had been divided into hindu india muslim india and the british period and they had also derived on an orientalist conception where ancient india was the greatest while medieval india like of europe was the period of decline so this communal version of history was contested in these texts but these versions of history also continued in several other textbooks because ncert textbooks were not the only textbooks number 1 number 2 our own historical consciousness also gets shaped by several other sources other than school textbooks which include oral narratives which include stories which include several other kinds of from amar chitrakatha to other things so they were also shaping historical narrative and there was also a political movement going on to present and counter a secular egalitarian conception of india at the same time it is important to note that no such critical perspective was brought in in what was the subject called civics or politics so here as i have said earlier the colonial state from the colonial state the focus on order remained central even in the post colonial textbooks of the secular india right the state was seen as the developmentalist as paternal doing everything good structural inequalities were ignored so several such things continued and by 1970s when the janta party government came to power in 
of which Bharatiya Jansan was a major constituent, a major controversy broke out on the textbooks written by Satish Chandra, Romila Thapar, and these textbooks were to be removed because a certain different version, historical narrative was to be present, whereby Mughals and Muslims and Mughals were and Muslims were equated in Mughals while there were several dynasties. So people were only seen in terms of rulers. The collaborations were ignored. The difference between rulers and ordinary life was ignored. And instead, a different set of narrative was to be given. So that was a major controversy on textbooks in history, which happened in 1977, on which Rudolf and Rudolf have written a very impressive analytical commentary in 1980s. So in 1980s, then the question of national integration becomes increasingly in the wake of 1984, in terms of emerging Hindutva politics, in terms of Congress's own uh, turn towards uh, soft uh, mobilizing Hindu public. So these kinds of things, ethnic conflicts, Assam struggle. So the question of national integration also becomes crucial, which finds significant relevance in the 1986 National Policy in Education. So it is then safe to say that right from the period of independence, textbooks have always been used as an ideological tool that caters to the interests of the ruling dispensation. Whether it was the secularization project or whether it was the project of creating a narrative of national integration. If that is the case, what is happening now is not really a new phenomenon, right? So is it even possible to conceive an educational policy that is free of ideological commitments? I think you are partially correct, but I think certain other correctives uh, are important. A, that we, while we look at historicity of this, we need to understand that uh, the period we are talking about, the contemporary period, is also has a historical lineage, but is also qualitatively different. Like we do in history, we look at simultaneously continuity and change. So we need to say, make sense of both. Okay, that's one. Second thing we need to understand that just because something is ideological okay, does not mean that both the ideologic ideologies in terms of their vision of India and in terms of the constitutional vision of India are same. So even the idea that people are equal or the idea that some people are inferior and others are superior. Both these are ideological constructs. Both these are also visions about a society, about relationships in society. To say that the vision that people have to be treated inferior, certain ethnic groups or gender or caste or class or disability, and the other group saying that no people have to be given their human dignity and worth. We should make available opportunities for everyone. We should emphasize on democracy and participation. Both these are ideological commitments. Both these are also social visions. So even if these are ideological and contesting social visions, they cannot be equated 
that one is replacing the another. It's not a game. It's not a game. Here we are talking about preparing the young, the citizenry. We are thinking about what kind of a society we want. What kind of education is necessary for that society. And why we want democracy. And why differences and analysis, development of capacities is essential in democracy. That's what is at contest. So in that context, if you were to look at the recent curriculum changes that were proposed in 2020 as part of the national education policy and have been implemented step by step over a period of these last three years, can we conclude that this is a deliberate attempt by the present ruling dispensation to challenge the constitutional ideals of secularism and democracy? Despite the fact that these changes, though evidently political and ideologically motivated, have ostensibly been made in the name of curriculum rationalization. As an educationist, what do you think are the long-term implications of keeping students ill-informed? Right. So I will say again, uh, qualify your statement. Huh? Please allow me, I am a teacher. So when we say political, there are three levels that we can think of, of politics and education. One is in narrower sense of political ideologies, which you were referring to earlier. But a more important thing is also to understand that the political is also in terms of visions. Education is never outside politics. Because for what kind of things the idea that children should have midday meal is political. That means that you want to counter malnutrition. You want to bring children to school. Or promoting privatization. Spending on smart boards. Having certain schools which are very well uh, resourced in comparison to thousands of schools which are uh, not so is also political. So there is nothing which is outside political. The question we need to ask here is, what is the politics? Whom does this politics favor? As the Hindi poet Mukti Bodh would say, Comrade, what is your politics? Is your politics in favor of people? Or is your politics in favor of accumulation, in favor of elite, in favor of majoritarianism? So that's again we need to distinguish. But there is a third more element about education in terms of politics which doesn't get talked about. That is the politics of pedagogy and politics of curriculum, politics of knowledge. How do we look at children? Earlier I referred about Bloom's taxonomy. Earlier I referred about behaviorism. Where if you say that if children only mug up and they can reproduce the answer given in the textbook. We will call them educated. This is also an educational politics. Because here we are depriving the young from developing capacities to understand themselves, the community and society of which they are part, the structural inequalities within this society, the relationship and shifts to think about their own society and the world and a belief and confidence 
that I can understand, I can make change, I can contribute, I can engage in dialogue, I can engage in dialogue despite differences and there can be more than one perspective to look at things. So, when, like it happened in the case of minimal levels of learning now or the politics of learning outcomes or during earlier, here the whole emphasis on incomprehension as Yashpal Committee report said, learning without burden. That is also politics. But what is happening and there, this is why the textbooks which are being deleted, it's also important to know that these were not only secular textbooks against the communal textbooks. These textbooks were inviting children to examine, to think about their experience, to compare, to make sense, to think about concrete evidence, to examine who is being served by this? What is the rationale behind this? So this is also political. This is a pedagogic political. Okay. And it was attempting to remove the burden of incomprehension, which leads to children being bored to death in schools, having no joy of learning, rather it becoming unpleasant. These textbooks also brought a new kind of language. So when now we are looking at these deletions, these deletions are doing multiple attacks. A, they are definitely political and they wish to puncture the possibilities whereby students also develop a perspective to examine both the past and the present and reimagine a future which is of a democratic India. By rupturing, denying students possibilities of contesting ideas of critical phases and difficult phases of Indians, Indian history and politics, you are keeping them ill-informed. And when you keep children ill-informed, then it is also possible to ideologically manipulate them, to indoctrinate them, to weaponize them and turn them into violent beings who instead of thinking of others as fellow citizens are rather filled with hatred. So that's also something as a teacher, as a parent, I'm worried about. Dr. Manish, as someone who has been part of various curriculum revision committees, can you give us a broad sense of the processes that are in operation in such committees? Yeah, I'll, I'll give you examples from two of my experiences of 2002 SCRT textbooks and then 2005 to 7 uh, after NCF curriculum textbooks. So even in 2003, when we were writing, I was part of civics textbooks writing. We were constantly thinking about these textbooks were to be made for students of Delhi. So we tried to make sense of these were to be used in government schools in Delhi. And these were to be written in Hindi. These are important things because I am talking about context. 
So we needed to understand that who are these children and who is a student of Delhi. And Delhi is not singular. Delhi has established planned colonies. It also has slums. Delhi had, by then, metro had come. Delhi also had urbanized villages. What is the interlinkage within the chapter? What are the kind of sources we are going to use? What are the narratives we are going to use? What kind of photographs are to be used? Which news items are to be used? And I'll give you one more instance. I'll say this narrative in Hindi and say it in English as well. So in, a, in the chapter on citizenship, the chapter started like this. I am a citizen of India. In English, it seems natural. But when you say it in Hindi, then the speaking subject is a, is a girl. Some people objected that you are distorting the language. You are using the language which is like of a magazine. Now, bringing a woman at the center stage, a girl student at the center stage, as the speaking subject itself was a change, which was also deliberate. And later on, even during 2005, we brought in a variety of case studies. We used a variety of sources from cartoons to film songs to posters to feminist groups to research studies to news headings to examples from various countries through which also one could also think conceptually but one could also think in relation to what is happening. So a lot of debate happened over what pedagogic resources to use, over what language to use, what examples to use, what kind of continuity to have from one chapter to another, from one class to another. So these were the different processes we followed. Dr. Manish, in terms of the pedagogical implications, the stated objective of these recent revisions was that it was done to reduce the load of the students. How scientific is this argument? And how do you review these deletions in the context of the seminal Yashpal Committee report that was published in 1993 and which emphasized on the idea of learning without burden? The kind of flimsy ground of rationalization which NCRT is producing in the name of COVID, you are, you have to understand that knowledge also are not discrete pieces from which you can suddenly remove a sticker and say that still it will look the same. And their whole understanding of even burden of learning is also, they, they are thinking about the weight of the bag, but the burden which is of incomprehension is actually beyond their comprehension, the manner in which they are. So besides ideological elements, this absence of a pedagogic perspective is also, I have taught at school for 10 years and I have written these, I have been part of teams which have written textbooks. I'm not saying textbooks cannot be changed. Please understand. This is not at all. What I am saying is that there has to be a certain process through which textbooks have to be changed. 
the reasoning has to be both justified in terms of its pedagogic implications as well as in terms of the social and educational reason that we have for the country. I think in both of these, these deletions turn out to be too narrow. Is learning a product or is learning a process? It is not a Zomato delivery which teacher has to give. There, there is a finished product. A customer has ordered it. The customer will pay. The customer will consume. Knowledge is a process which through participation and argumentation, which through experience and debate, which through being exposed to Analysis of evidence, building an argument, comparing an analysis develops over a period with diversity of perspectives. Here, their own argument of rationalization is by emphasizing on pages, they just cannot understand that what was the argument of Yashpal committee report? It was talking about the burden of incomprehension. Incomprehension means that even if pages are few, you can't understand what is being said. Thank you, Dr. Manish. It was wonderful having you on Threadbare. Thank you so much. <laughs>